0: Great. So tonight's uh, talk will be focused on Timothy Morton. Timothy is, uh, he's been a, a more recent obsession of mine uh, for the past five years or so. Uh, I think five, maybe six years ago, I first uh, found out about him. I'm not, I, can't, I was trying to remember today how, but I can't. I think I just bumped into his book, um, uh Ecology Without Nature, which was his first book. Have, have any of you ever read Timothy or know of him at all? He's not a household name. Uh, <clears throat> he's uh, he. When I first found out about him, he was at UC Davis. Um, and then he moved to Rice University, where he's now the chair of uh, English. He's actually an English professor, but he has a very uh, particular interest in in global warming. And that motivates a lot of his work. Uh, and I think he has a very interesting way of going about it. So I brought a few of his books, which uh, you know will be up here for anyone who wants to take a peek at them after I've spoken. Uh, I will be going over some of Timothy's ideas and relating them to American philosophy generally. Because philosophically, my orientation is in uh, what I'm compelled by is understanding the trajectory of American philosophy uh, from at least the transcendentalists, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson, through the pragmatists, William James and Charles Sanders Peirce, into modern day. And uh, last month, when I spoke here, I spoke about another professor from Rice University. His name is Jeffrey Kripel. Uh, He's a historian of religion and has very interesting theories about the paranormal, which is what we spoke about last month. And I see Jeffrey Kripel very directly as a kind of uh, philosophical descendant. or or I I see him very directly having a philosophical descendant in William James. So I feel like a lot of William James's philosophical project regarding the paranormal, you can see being continued with Jeffrey Kripel. Uh, over at Rice University. And in a similar way, I feel that uh, Timothy Morton is carrying on the project of Charles Sanders Peirce, who was another uh, pragmatist of about a century ago. And we'll get into a little bit of that uh, today. I think both of them have incredibly valuable perspectives to share. They're both they're both very interesting uh, academics because they break the mold of, of academia, at least. Um, and they both have kind of cult followings, which I think helps you break the mold of academia. So Timothy Morton, as you could see, he publishes sort of every other week, it feels like. Um, and he has definitely a following of people who are very interested in his ideas. I find him incredibly inspiring. Um, so I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and the first thing that I wanted to say is I can't remember who said it, maybe somebody would, but I think during our most recent election cycle, someone said, was quoted as saying, elections have consequences. Um, <laughs> and, you know, th- they were right, of course. Well, <clears throat> I think what Timothy Morton is saying with a lot of his work is that philosophies have consequences. Uh, we sort of think of philosophies as these kind of not very valuable series of ideas that hardly anybody understands that get debated in academic circles and then written about in books that nobody reads. Uh, and we don't think about it as, a particu- as, as being particularly um, consequential. Uh, but the fact is, and I think this is, a, this is one thing that Timothy Morton is definitely saying, is that philosophies... Whether we understand them or not is sort of irrelevant. The fact that our culture is rooted in them means that, that our culture unfolds in certain directions. So philosophies have consequences. They're not inconsequential, uh, abstract ideas that don't affect our lives. I used to do a very interesting uh, philosophical experiment. There was a time when I was teaching a lot in Europe. And uh, I, I was teaching on American philosophy, which most Europeans don't really know that there is an American philosophy. But that's okay cuz most Americans don't necessarily know that either. So, but you know, Europeans definitely know their own philosophies. They're 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 quite well schooled. So I would go and start my lectures by saying, "Okay, I want you to now I want I want I ask people, "Will you please list all of the positive No, first I used to start with all of the negative attributes that you um, Think of when you think of Americans. And then they would put all of their negative attributes, you know, greedy, materialistic, da, da, you know, they had a lot of them. So we'd write them all on the board. And then I'd say, okay, now what are all the positive attributes that you associate with Americans? And, you know, people had, you know, freedom loving, independent, they'd have a lot of. Uh, positive attributes. And then I would, I, had, I would do about an hour to an hour and a half lecture on American philosophy showing how all of these characteristics were a direct consequence of the philosophy that we believe in. And many of us believe in it without even knowing where it came from. But you know, very directly, uh, these, these philosophical roots that somehow uh, become part of the lexicon, part of how we speak. Part of how we think, part of what's built into our institutions, shapes us into a particular kind of human being that the rest of the world knows as Americans. That we also know as Americans, uh, and we, you know, we're shaped a certain way. We, you know, if you go, if you travel in Europe, there's very few circumstances where Europeans won't figure out who the American is pretty quickly, uh, and. That's not a judgment, negative or positive. It, what it says is that we have certain characteristics. And a lot of those characteristics are, are there because of the philosophical beliefs that are embedded in our culture. So I got fascinated by American philosophy and then started to realize that it's, it's much richer than I ever imagined. And I started reading about it and writing essays about it and eventually writing books about it. Um, and this lecture series directly comes out of that. So earlier in the series, I spoke more about Ralph Waldo Emerson, John Dewey, William James, Charles Sanders Peirce. They're all older philosophers, you know, the, the sort of foundations of American philosophy. More recently, with Jeffrey Cripel and now Timothy Morton, I'm speaking about philosophers working today that I see as being inside the stream of American philosophy. Now, interestingly enough, Timothy Morton's actually English. Um, he He seems to have always worked in America, though, and uh, therefore does feel like he's in that stream. Uh, Alfred North Whitehead is generally is often considered an American philosopher, but he was definitely an English philosopher, uh, but he did spend the last ten years of his life uh, working in America, so he he got very influenced uh, by that stream so Philosophies have consequences, just like elections. Uh, and so Timothy Morton is very disturbed by the consequence of global warming and, and basically wants to find out, what are the philosophical roots of global warming? How did we get here? I mean, it doesn't really make sense. I mean, if you, if you step back and think, you know, uh, let's say that you were a god and you said, I think I'm going to make a planet. And have some species evolve on it, and eventually have one that destroys the place. You know, I wonder how I can make that happen. You know, it, you know it would be a bit of a conundrum. You know, because most people don't want. It's like saying I want to have someone who burns down their house while they're living in it. It's not generally the kind of thing that's going to happen. Obviously, nobody wants global warming. You, you, there's no proponents of global warming. There's differences of opinion as to what the causes of it are. Um, and Timothy Morton has a very interesting way of understanding what the philosophical roots of global warming are and I think that even beyond his focus on global warming uh, his articulations are very interesting because I think they identify uh, so in my own work I am, am very much teaching people about, writing about, and speaking about uh, a paradigm shift from a paradigm that we have been in for a long time to one that we're shifting into. And I think Timothy is doing his own version of that, as, as are hundreds of other people. Uh, his just happens to be one I resonate with a lot. Uh, and I've only had the opportunity to speak with him once or twice uh, by phone, uh, but I I could tell that we're... We're definitely resonating uh, similarly. So, tonight we're going to be questioning the philosophical question that we're going to be opening up is the assumption of empty space. It's one of the assumptions that Timothy Morton uh, really directly challenges. So, we live in a paradigm in which we assume that we, I like to call the paradigm we live in the things in space paradigm, uh, which means that we assume that the universe is made up of things like books and glasses full of water and tables and people that are separate and exist sort of dispersed through empty space. Uh, Now, that seems so obvious to us that we generally don't question it. But of course, part of the reason it seems so obvious is because we're in a paradigm that teaches us that it's obvious. Uh, So the way paradigms work is they essentially tell you the way reality is, then they tell you that only things that match that are real, and then you feel like all of this must be real. But you're in some kind of a, a circular argument you know, where the, the premise you start from, like, we are things in space, then creates the circumstances under which all you can see is things in space, until you're confronted with someone's philosophy that asks you that maybe you could see things differently. And if you stretch, you start to go, wow, maybe there's another way to see this that I hadn't thought of. And to me, uh, the kind of philosophy which is, tends to be limited to text comparison, which is you know philosophy, the kind of philosophy where you read this person's text and that person's text and you compare them, as valuable as it may be, is not as interesting as the kind of philosophy where people come up with strikingly original ways to understand reality and then try to articulate them articulate them so that others can experience them. Which I think is what Timothy Morton does. It's what Jeffrey Kripke does. Uh, and as we'll see in a minute, it's, it's a, there's a whole school of philosophy which is rooted in the idea that more philosophers need to do that today than ever before. And Timothy Morton is one of the handful of philosophers who's at the forefront of that movement in philosophy. And, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, so Timothy Morton's first book was Ecology Without Nature. I do not have that book. Um, it's it's a, I think he's written a few others besides these, but that one I don't have. But the idea of it, the basic idea is, is quite simple. Uh, what he was articulating is that <clears throat> Our ecological challenges, like global warming, among others. The, if you really want to get into it, one of the biggest causes of those challenges is our idea of nature, is the fact that we have a conception of nature that essentially mean, where, where essentially we see nature as something separate from us. Uh, so, in other words, you know, how many times have you said or heard people say, "I really got to get out in nature this weekend." You know, and Timothy would say, "What do you think this is? What do you think you are? Where are you going to go?" That's nature. Where this is not nature. Uh, and and so so once again, connecting to uh, some earlier American philosophy, Ralph Waldo Emerson often said something very similar, uh, as did uh, Walt Whitman, uh, the poet. You know, Whitman's poetry was mostly about cities. And part of what he was saying is, the city is as beautiful an expression of nature as anything else. You know, so the earlier Romantic poets like Wordsworth, they would go, they would want to, they would, they would sort of, they were looking at uh, industrial age London and going, oh my God, we need to go to nature and write poetry. And I can understand that. And Whitman was saying, well, wait a minute, if you really look at the city and and all the grit and the grime, you see a beautiful unfolding of nature. Right here, among how people are interacting and how they're struggling to find a way to be together, Uh, and and so he wanted to write about human beings and their and their created environments as natural. Emerson said something similar in one of his essays. We talk about nature as as I can't remember the exact quote now, but it basically says what the the town, the city, the street; these are all as natural as anything else. Um, And Morton is saying the same thing. He's saying by By imagining that nature is somehow separate from us, that gap that we create is the gap within which global warming takes place. Because somehow, philosophically, we've emotionally distanced ourselves from nature. And that distance is what gives us the space to to enact global warming without us feeling the consequences of it. You know, that I would say generally is is the theory. Now, that's connected to an even bigger or an even deeper philosophical assumption, uh, which is the assumption that life occurs, that there's some kind of a background to life. You know, and, and we've been trained very profoundly and deeply philosophically trained, as I said, to see reality as things existing in space we've been trained to think about a universe. And in this universe, there are planets and stars. And on at least one planet, there are trees and people and align centers and all kinds of other things that emerged out of this planet. Uh, And so the universe becomes kind of the, the universal. The universe becomes the universal background to everything else. It's what we're inside of. And Morton wants to say we're not inside of anything. There is no background to life. There is no background that's separate from us that we exist inside of. That's part of the fundamental cause of the sense of separation. Just like there's no nature that exists out there separate from me, there's no universe that exists out there separate from me. We just live in a philosophical construct that that allows us to see that way. Um, And so one of the ways I speak about the kind of paradigm shift that I think many of us are interested in is that uh, the paradigm we've been in for quite a while, I sometimes talk about it as the things in space paradigm. At other times, I speak about it as the paradigm of separation. Uh, It's the paradigm in which we have been trained to see things as separate and interacting. The paradigm that we're moving into, I like to say, can be thought of as rather than things in space, uh, I have sometimes talked about it as continuity unfolding or the paradigm of unity, the paradigm in which we recognize that all of this seeming separation is all part of one unfolding event That's, that's growing as a whole. Not, not as a bunch of separate things competing uh, and growing. And I think definitely Morton, I think, would, would be aligned with that, but has his own very interesting conception that we're going to get to uh, around that. So one of, the f- one of the interesting challenges of philosophy. So again, let's say we were a god who created a planet. And we wanted to create on that planet a species that was going to eventually call itself human and was going to spend a lot of time developing philosophies to try to understand some where it was. And wouldn't it be interesting to to see, like, what kind of, you know, you could imagine yourself being the god looking down and going, I wonder what they're going to come up with. And all kinds, you know, everything in the opposite has been tried. You know, you have um, idealists who believe that consciousness is primary and that matter is just uh, particularly stubborn habits of mind. And then, boom, you have realists on the other hand, or, or materialists even more so, who believe that matter is the only thing that's real, and somehow consciousness is an epiphenomena that comes through the interaction of matter. So you've got everything in the opposite, and, and they very brilliant minds have created philosophies, and, and some of them will reign for a while, and everyone will be on board with that one, and then something will shift, and there'll be another one, and everyone will be on board with that one, and it goes back and forth and back and forth. Uh, one of the things that Charles Sanders Peirce was very uh, into, and this was you know, now in the 1870s, and that Timothy Morton is also a proponent of, is the fact that if you look at all those philosophies, and inevitably this is true, it's not anybody's fault, but they're all philosophies that were constructed from the human perspective. It was all us as human beings trying to figure out the way reality works. So inevitably, we, we figured it out from our point of view. Because we didn't have another point of view to figure it out from. Uh, and Peirce, was, Peirce you know, 150 years ago, or however long it was, felt that this was one of the major stumbling blocks in philosophy, and that somehow a, a, a philosophy, an understanding of reality, needed to be created. Now, you, you couldn't really create a philosophy that wasn't from the human perspective, because we're human beings. That's the only perspective we have, but Peirce believed if you were really careful, you'd be able to correct for the biases in the human perspective, and and therefore be able to construct uh, a philosophy that was beyond the human perspective. Uh, you often do this in in science experiments. You you have to you know that you're looking at it from a certain point of view, so you have to. Uh, Mathematically, often, you have to make adjustments so that you get a more objective view. So Peirce wanted to find the most objective view. Uh, Morton wants to find the most objective view. He wants to find a view that is uh, not only from the human perspective. So when did global warming start? Uh, you know, so we've got this human-centered philosophy. Uh, we want to find out how it has uh, how it has contributed to global warming. So one of the questions you'd ask is, well, when did global warming start? Maybe that will give us a clue as to how our philosophy has affected global warming. And Morton, along with others, sees. Uh, global the, the initiation point of global warming as the start of what is sometimes called the Anthropocene. Uh, the Anthropocene is a geological age. Um, I don't know that that phrase is universally. I don't think it's universally accepted. Actually, I think it's accepted by a lot of people or used by a lot of people, but hasn't really been uh, fully absorbed into into geological circles. But the Anthropocene is a opposed notion of a new geological age, which is the geological age in which the geology of this planet, that the main factor shaping it, has become one of the species living on it, specifically humans. So it, the Anthropocene means the, it's the ge- geological age of the human. It's when we became the biggest shaping influence on the planet. And the place where Morton uh, sees this initiating uh, is in the late 1700s, um, and this is, you know, others would agree with him uh, who have this. The late 1700s, there were two events that are often pinpointed as the beginning of the Anthropocene. The first is the invention of the steam engine. The, the, and when the steam engine got invented and got, started to get spread all over the world, all of a sudden, the amount of coal that was being burned increased dramatically because there were all these engines now doing all this work. There were steamships and, uh, yeah, just engines all over the place. And from that period, when, when geologists take samples of the Earth's crust, at that time in history, you start to see a layer of carbon. You, you can actually see in the geographic record, uh, the geological record, that a layer of carbon is being, is falling from all of the burning. Is starting to fall onto the planet in in a large enough quantity that you can actually measure it by taking a ground sample. Now, you know, they were burning stuff a 1,000 years ago, but they weren't burning enough of it uh, to be able to see it. But at that point, you started to see, oh my God, there's there's human burned coal samples that we can now see so many feet below the earth starting and then getting increasing, 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 increasing uh, over time. So that's the beginning of the Anthropocene. And then Timothy Morton likes to say, well, you know what else happened at that time? Uh, a German philosopher by the name of Immanuel Kant wrote something called The Critique of Pure Reason and came up with a philosophical construction that was widely adapted. I mean, nothing, it's been uh, unquestioned more or less ever since. And the, and the philosophical construction is this that we don't experience the world directly. We experience phenomena. So what he said is, when I pick up this book, I can see the colors of the book, which was phenomena that my eye picks up, feelings of the book that my fingers can touch. Uh, I can see the words. I can smell it. And I put all those sense perceptions together and create a, a, a phenomenal experience of a book. But it's not a real experience. It's just the phenomena. And what Morton wants to say, along with others, is that that further concretized this distance. Because Kant actually said the real world, which is the noumena, this is a word, word, we use phenomena all the time. Nobody ever uses noumena. I mean, even when you put it in, in your, uh, I know, because I've printed it. When you, when you print it in your Word, pre, in your word doc, uh, it just spell checks it wrong. Um, because it's just not a word anybody uses, which is sort of unfortunate, because the word for the real world is one we don't even spell check for, you know? I mean, that sort of illustrates the point, uh, you know? Who needs that one? That's just the real world. Because the real world, according to Kant, is, is un, un, it's, it's, it's unexperienceable. All we can experience is phenomena, and we have no idea how this phenomenal world relates to anything real. And you know that may seem difficult to swallow, but unfortunately, it is the basis of our philosophical heritage, uh, and is largely unquestioned. And and according to Morton, he he feels like it's it may be. And you know again, everything that a lot of things Morton says, you have to like have a big space for around the fact that it doesn't necessarily make sense in the current paradigm. But he doesn't believe that it's a coincidence. That Immanuel Kant 's theory uh, that separated us from reality occurred simultaneous to the uh, invention of the steam engine. Now not that you know, now of course we live in a paradigm of linear cause and effect, which you know Jeffrey Kripel challenges all over the place, but in the, in the paradigm of linear cause and effect, you'd say, well we would have i can't remember the guy 's name who invented the steam engine, but you'd, you know, you'd want to say, did he?" read Kant? Did he know anything about Kant? How could he have been influenced by Kant if he didn't know Kant? You know? But in, in a world where we're letting go of the idea of linear cause and effect, and we're starting to embrace the possibility that this is a unity that co-arises simultaneously, it may not be coincidental that the two things arose simultaneously, even if they arose seemingly isolated from one another. They may be a reflection of the same arising since they did happen at the same time. And they do, at least in Morton's point of view, they do seem to uh, influence one another or, or accelerate one another. So global warming to Morton starts um, in the late 1700s with the construction of the steam engine, Kant's philosophy uh, of the phenomena. and and that's the start of the Anthropocene, the beginning of the age in which human beings become the major shaping force in the geology of this planet uh, but then he you know he goes back further so uh, this is his most recent book actually his most recent book is coming out next month uh, this is his last most recent book, dark ecology I just did a I did an eight month course, and this was one of the books that we read in it so i'm I'm very pumped up about this book at the moment. Um, and it's called Dark Ecology. And he basically wants to go back and say, well, OK, the Anthropocene may have started in the 1700s. But, but this trajectory that led to global warming started a lot longer ago than that. You know, maybe it wasn't until the late 1700s that we uh, were actually able to experience the effects of it. But he's saying that the momentum toward global warming started way back when we first started to move from being hunters and gatherers to being agricultural uh, communities, where we started to um, farm, and we started to herd animals, and and we were no longer nomadically traveling around searching for food. We were now growing our own food. And hurting our own food, and so, why? Philosoph, you know, what's the philosophy there? Is you know what? And I think it's a fascinating theory. You know, the thing about philosophical theories is you can't really prove them. Um, you you know, anyways, a whole other conversation we can get into about what philosophy is. And I don't believe that philosophy are stories about what's true. I believe they're stories that explain things in ways that are either more or less beneficial. Uh, and that either attract more human energy or not. Uh, and I don't think it's necessarily that useful. It's, the reason why it's not that useful to say that philosophies point to the truth is because the way we understand truth, truth is some kind of background of things that are unchangingly real. And these philosophies want to question that whole concept. Uh, so, so philosophically, what... Um, Uh, Morton gets into is at that point where we started to grow our own food and uh, herd animals and and raise animals to eat something amazing happened in human beings Uh, what what happened was we started to think that we could win Mm -hmm. that actually the hardships that we have been had been struggling with for tens of thousands of years, m- you know, we might be able to defeat them, and at that point, according to Borden, as a species, we became committed to overcoming death and suffering. You know, before that, and it had never occurred to anybody that death and suffering could be overcome. But at that point, we said, "Wait a minute! If we can grow enough food and herd enough animals." we might be able to transcend death and suffering. And then they said, let's do that. And we've been doing that ever since. Uh, and I think you know this is a fascinating thing to, to think about. So uh, Morton's construction is he, he calls this, what happened at this point is, is a, a program of what he calls agrologics kicked in in the human species. And he describes it as a kind of algorithm, an algorithm that's been running ever since. It was a, a, a set of axioms that were absorbed by the species that became the foundation of our action and have been running the whole time since tens of thousands of years. We've been running the agrologics program. <coughs> and agrologics is based on three assumptions. The first one, and these, you know, we'll ne- we have no time to get into all these <laughs> as deeply as you could, but I'm just going to mention them. The first one is, Existing things cannot be contradictory, (laughs) right? Uh, So what that basically means is I can only be Jeff. I can't be Jeff and something else, because that would contradict. So everything has to be itself completely. It it has to be, and there cannot be any confliction, uh, anything conflicting. Now, Morton sees that as a real liability philosophically, because it weds us to an idea that I'm the same thing now that I was an hour ago. I'm philosophically wedded to that commitment, that I see myself as, uh, as another philosopher calls it, a self-same thing, that I'm the same. Somehow I am the same today as I was 10 years ago. And you're the same in some way even though I know attributes have changed and your life circumstance, but somehow you were, you're Jeff now, you were Jeff then, you've always been Jeff. That's not necessarily true. That's just a philosophical commitment. Uh, and we, we're committed to that kind of uh, non-contradiction and uh, continuity. So that's axiom one of the agrologics program. Make sure everything remains itself always and never becomes something else because that causes problems. Not a great philosophy if you really want radical transformation, because it, it weds things to being what they are. The second, existing things must be constantly present. Uh, so that means things can't flicker in and out of existence. If, if something exists, it has to exist constantly all the time. And uh, Morton has some very interesting ideas about this, because he doesn't believe that things exist constantly. Uh, all the time. He believes we're always flickering in and out of existence, that, that there's a part of us that's, that's this manifest existence, and there's a part that's just an empty, non-existent mystery, and they're always flickering in and out. And, and because we've had this agrologics program, we've trained ourselves over tens of thousands of years to only see the constantly existing part of us, and we've almost completely lost sense of the non-existent. Now what he would say is that the non-existent is what people come in contact with in deep meditation and spiritual revelations. When they come in contact with what is often called the mystery, they're not coming in contact with some kind of esoteric foolishness. They're actually coming in contact with the non-existent elements of reality. Now this all sounds totally weird, and the reason it sounds totally weird is because we live in the paradigm that has already told us that any that only real thi- that all real things have to exist constantly. So then, if Timothy Morton says, "But I think things don't exist constantly," you go, "No, everything exists constantly." Well, how do you know that? Because the paradigm told me that's how. And if you do that enough times, it's like an affirmation. You won't be able to see it any other way. Now, what's even more interesting? See, all these things get more interesting and more interesting as you look into them. What's even more interesting is that uh, modern physics is already telling us the same thing that things aren't actually here all the time, that everything is flickering in and out of existence all the time, which is amazing because at the leading edge of our current science that really nobody's questioning who's a scientist is already backing up this this radically bizarre way of seeing reality. But we don't see it that way. We like to think of ourselves as being really scientific-minded, logical people, which we are. By and large, our common culture is very scientific and very rooted in science. Unfortunately, the science we're rooted in is like 300 years old. But besides that, we're very scientific. I mean, we're not really worried about the implications of quantum mechanics on our daily existence or uh, relativity theory on our daily existence. We think of those as things that are only true for the very, very, very tiny, or only true for the very, very, very large. And we're in the middle where those things aren't true, which is not true. <laughs> That's just not the way it works. You know, the, the theories, the physical laws aren't only true at one end of the spectrum. They have to be true all the way through. The fact that we have uh, perceptual tools that have been shaped by older science so that that's all that we can see. This is what I always want to get across in everything that I do. You know, and it's, it's, it's very hard to accept. But we do not see reality the way it is. We see reality the way we've been trained to see it. And then we defend it as real because we see it that way. This is the whole, this is the whole bigger point. We see reality the way we've been trained to see it philosophically. And then we defend it vehemently as being real and when you really push, 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 where's the, the evidence becomes, because I see it that way. You think, oh, well, that doesn't really work. You see it that way because you've been trained to see it that way. And then you defend it by saying you see it that way. And then you know, the argument could go on forever. But you only see it that way because you've been you know, it goes, That's why they call it a circular argument. Eventually you say, oh, forget it. Let's go get a cheeseburger. You know, it's not worth it after a while. Um, so that's, I only got to the second one. Yeah. <laughs> So, then, so that's the second uh, law of agrologic. The third law of agrologics says existence is more important than anything else. That, this is kind of foundational to the program. We are going to fight for life everlasting. This is about existing no matter what. And some of the things that Morton says is this is why, philosophically, we have constructed a culture within which... You know, it really can get to, if you think about it sometimes, somewhat absurd proportions where we're willing to allow the quality of life to go below zero as long as life continues. You know, the, the by and large, our culture isn't as nearly as worried about the quality of existence as it is about the fact of existence, and that's part of the agrologics program, because You know, at the time that agrologics was kicking in, life was so uncertain. Existence came and went. I'm sure it was very difficult. The idea that you could exist, you know, with with a kind of security that was going to last for a long time was so amazing. You gave everything to that. So what Morton's saying is that basically our consciousness is runs like a computer program, and there's certain algorithms in it with certain little programs that keep running over and over and, over and over and over and over and over and over again, and they add up to what we experience. And, and at least in his philosophical construct, you go all the way back to the time of the agricultural revolution, and you, you get this algorithm of agrologics. Existing things cannot be contradictory. Existing things must be constantly present. Existence is more important than anything else, and that those three rules have fundamentally led us on a trajectory where, and you know, he's an English professor, so he likes to talk about ironies, where the irony was that our unending, complete commitment to life everlasting has, when you really string it out, 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 has led, maybe led, to the destruction of the whole planet. So our desire to live forever has meant we've destroyed ourselves forever. Uh, and so that's one of the things that he writes a lot about is, is irony to him is not just a literary mechanism, it's an actual experience we need to be able to absorb, uh, to, to live with more and more. And I'm going to get into that um, in a few minutes. So, everything I just laid out for you is the problem. Is the, is the, this is all, how did we get here? So, Timothy Morton sits back. He writes Dark Ecology. He writes um, The Ecological Thought. He writes hyperobjects, Realist Magic, Objects, Ontology, and Causality. That's a title that you use when you don't really care if you sell any books. Uh, you know, this, is, not, this is not like a Barnes & Noble best-selling title. Uh, and he's written m- many other books, and they're all difficult to read, but all amazing. Um, and in a nutshell, this is the problem that... Uh, as I see it, that he lays out. So what's awesome is to have a solution to go with your problem. Um, so, so the solution, in the biggest sense, is a paradigm shift, as we've been talking about. Here's a few elements I want to share with you about his solution. One is we have to understand this concept of hyperobjects. Uh, hyperobjects has, be, has become a major part in Morton's philosophy. The, and he started it by talking about global warming and saying we need to see global warming as a hyperobject. Uh and what a hyperobject is at least when you're talking about global warming is it's an object that's so big and and that exists it exists in in so much over so much space and over time periods that are so large that we can't conceive we can't hold it in our head. So we we can't really it's an it's like an object that's so big that it essentially exists in a different dimension, so he 's saying global warming is like an object that exists in a different dimension. We experience the effects of it in our dimension, but the totality of it we can't we don 't have a nervous system big enough to feel it in the same way the human species is a, is a hyper object we 're all individual humans, but there is a hyper object called the human species the the program of agrologics isn't just something that every individual had to learn and enact. And, and I mean, most of us didn't hear about it till today. Um, and, but the species absorbed it at some point. And, and this is, you know, again, something that you have to leave a lot of space for. We aren't, the human species, in, in the way that I read Morton at least, is not a collection of individual beings. The human species itself is a hyperobject, of which the individuals are an expression. And um, I, you know, one of the ways I like to help us all understand this is to say, you know, um, I have fingers and a hand and elbow, arm, right? But I still am a me. I'm a Jeff. These are all parts of Jeff, but Jeff is a thing an independent entity that includes all those things and more. So in the same way, we're all human beings. But the human species is not just a collection of us. It is it is itself a something. It has its own consciousness that we are a reflection of, that we share, but is not limited by us. So, These are just ways like, okay, you know, it, it, what I love is the fact that there are actually Real philosophers in actual universities writing about this, and they're not getting fired. it's so amazing. Like you know it shows you that there's still room uh, you know and which brings me to the next point. The other part of the solution, according to uh, Morton, is something called speculative realism. Uh, has anybody heard of speculative realism? <clears throat> this is a philosophical movement. It started about I think five or six years. It was just after the time I heard about Morton, or at least he got involved just after that time. It's a very new philosophical movement. It has, it, you know it, it's, I don't know, it has the whole legend of it is that it was initiated in a conference in Paris by four individuals, uh, and I believe Morton was one of those. And the basic idea of speculative realism is that philosophy used to be about people trying to understand and articulate the way things are, the way reality works. And then at some point, philosophy in the early part of the 20th century took what is known as the linguistic turn. So you know, everybody was trying to come up with meta-theories. You know, Hegel, had the, you know, he was one of the last big theorists. Actually, Peirce was a big theorist, but he never got quite as well known as Hegel. And they put up their big theories about everything, you know, grand, some would say grandiose, theories about the nature of everything and how reality worked. And at some point, philosophers in the early part of the 20th century, uh, influenced by people like Bertrand Russell, who was a big English philosopher, Wittgenstein, who was a big German philosopher, um, started to say, wait a minute, we're all trying to write about the nature of reality. And we don't even understand how the nature of language works. We don't even really have a good handle on how language points to reality. So it's kind of a waste of time to use language to try and create theories of reality. What we should really be doing is examining how language works. That's what philosophy should be about. It should be about how is reality captured in language. And that's basically what philosophy became for decades. Is, and that's the kind of philosophy many of us have heard of, You know, where you have a sentence and you go, and you just break it down. You know what is this sentence saying, and this is this is the subject, and what is it modifying, and does this, da, da, da. and and then it gets very mathematical. You you know you have these l- logical equations: if A, then B; if B is not C, then D. You know, and so that's the kind of thing everyone was getting into. It was called analytic philosophy, uh, where you try and analyze language to see what it's pointing to. Uh, And that led to an age that Timothy Morton calls the age of cynical realism, which is kind of what we're in right now. Which is, it used to be, at least this is the theory, it used to be that in academic circles, the way you got ahead was by having the best, most original new idea. That's, you know, people loved Hegel because he had something new to say. You know, wow, no one's ever said that before. That's amazing. Kant had something amazing to say. You know that, That's the way you got ahead. And people were trying to come up with new ways of, of understanding, new ways of thinking. In, in today's academic climate, that's not the way that you get on top anymore. The way you get on top now is by critiquing other people's theories. right? So if you're a young graduate student, it used to be if you were a young graduate student, you wanted to come up with like a new you know, amazing theory that everyone was going to say, wow, this person really deserves tenure because, wow, that's amazing. But now you want to take down the biggest theory that you could take down. You want to study it, compare it, find a way to critique it and pull the legs out of it and be on top because you knocked it down. Uh, And this was something that I had a conversation with Timothy about on the phone because he said, what that means is very few philosophers are willing to posit anything, uh, all anybody really can do you know, is either critique other people's philosophies, which now basically means older philosophies because nobody's offering anything. This <laughs> is like you throw it you know, up into the seagull nest and then everyone's going to just critique it. Um, or you can do the history of philosophy. And uh, Jeffrey Kripke, when I spoke with him, he said the same thing. He said, You know, all my books are about other philosophies. You know, they're about his, other historical people. Because I can write what I think if I can attribute it to someone else, because then it looks like history and people will let me get away with it. But if I just wrote it and said I actually think this is true, you know, it would all get torn to shreds. Um, so Timothy Morton and, and these other individuals created speculative realism, and the idea is uh, they want to bring back the room to speculate in philosophy, that we need to be able to create new theories and new ideas, and we need to put them out. And they need not to just be hacked down as soon as they get out there. They actually need to be taken seriously, explored, and the, you just the, their, their validity or value needs to be determined, not just uh, cutting them down. So. To that end, some of the speculative realists and Timothy Morton himself, and this is getting to the solution part of the program, have posited a new philosophy. So we're at a very interesting time, philosophically. Not that that many people really pay attention. But I mean, it's a, it's a small world. Uh, but there's a, a new philosophical construction, which I think is an amazing construction. And who knows? I mean, it's really getting very popular. Very popular. Like Hardly anybody's heard of it. It's, it's getting popular within certain circles. It's getting particularly picked up in artistic circles, this book, Magic, uh, sorry, Realist Magic, Objects, Ontology, and Causality, uh, is all about object-oriented ontology in relationship to uh, aesthetics and the creation of art. And a lot of artists have really picked up on it. And there's more and more art being created, which uh, the artists are claiming is inspired by and inside of Object oriented ontology. Uh, What object? Oh, I'm going to tell you in a minute. This is all the build up. How do you spell the third word? Object? No, object oriented ontology. O-N-T-O-L. Yes, O-N-T-O-L-G-Y. So, object is a word we all know. Oriented is a word we all know. And ontology is the branch of philosophy that deals with what's real. So, there's you know, there's three main branches of philosophy: ontology asks the question, "What is real?" Epistemology asks the question, "How do we know it's real?" And the other one doesn't really have a good name, but it's essentially values or morals, uh, which ask the question, "What's right?" Uh, in a in a moral. And so, if, you, if you're doing philosophy, you're going to be working in one of those three domains. Um, so, object-oriented ontology is a new theory about what is real. It opposes the things in space theory. It challenges the whole idea of there even being a space that exists. It challenges any background uh, to reality. And essentially it says, reality is just a heap of hyperobjects. And there is no space between the hyperobjects. Uh, There is only a sort of gelatinous mass of objects and that every movement of every object has necessary connections to the to every movement of every other object you know it'd be like if we were all um, you know if you imagine that we were all sort of these gelatinous bubbles that filled up this whole room right and then i moved and then of course the person next to me you know i i would create a ripple boop, 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 boop. then it's this person boop, 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 boop. Boop, 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 boop. Right, so we would be like this. Nothing individual could move without having a ripple effect in other places. What's that? Well, that would be one way to look at it, for sure. That that would be an excellent way. You know, then you'd have to get into what's energy. You know, you'd have to uh, look into it. But definitely, you could say we're all energy. I don't think Morton would would uh, disagree. Well, that, see, then you'd want to challenge the idea of every reaction is a reaction because that implies that there's an action, and then a reaction is, as opposed to everything is kind of moving as one mass, you know, um, and we, the, you know, in in our sensibility of separate things in space, we think in terms of action reaction, we in response we think. This happens, then this happens. The problem with that is if we don't see the reaction, we don't think it exists. And this is, so this book was the first book I read by Timothy Morton called The Ecological Thought. The Ecological Thought is basically, and this is kind of where this all comes comes down to, you know, he said, again, he loves this idea of irony. So the irony is that, you know, for hundreds of years, We've been running our steam engines, uh, mining our coal mines, building our factories, burning our fuels, turning our keys in our cars. Any one of those events in relationship to the global scale is statistically irrelevant. Driving my car to work today is a statistically irrelevant event. It had no impact, no measurable impact on global warming. So what Morton says, the ecological thought is the authentic, you know, emotionally uh, potent recognition that something as massive and devastating as global warming was created by an accumulation of events, each one of which was statistically irrelevant. And felt like it was having no effect at all. So, he, what he's saying is that the the the, the way global the reason global warming something like global warming propagates it could be a lot of other things. This happens to be the one he writes about. Is because that which causes it, in its individual instance, is statistically irrelevant, statistically insignificant. And therefore, doesn't feel like it's damaging, and this is this is the you know what I think what he's pointing to is we need a different philosophy. He believes object-oriented ontology might be part of that, where we see ourselves in a different way, so that we recognize we actually so that our perceptual system, our actual nervous system, starts to reconfigure, so that. When I turn the key in the car, I'm actually feeling the effect I'm having on warming the planet. Otherwise, it's all an abstraction. You know, we have to teach people, no, if you do, 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 do you know, you're going to have this effect. And we have to go through the whole cause and effect thing. Eh, but it doesn't feel like anything. It just feels like me getting to work. Um, and you know, Morton's saying, if, if we can come up with a different philosophical construct, our nervous system is, is actually shaped by the philosophical belief systems that we live inside of. Uh, and we need to create one that's going to allow us to experience a hyperobject as big as global warming, without it being merely an abstraction that, that we have to either believe in or not believe in. Uh, so that kind of takes me through everything I wanted to share. I mean, I, there's so much more that Timothy Morton writes about and talks about. But this was kind of a nice, neat way to go through the whole thing. But what I want to do is actually get us to to, uh, try to feel into his philosophy. So I like to teach what I call experiential philosophy. So obviously, there's a lot of ideas that I've just shared with you, and ideas are great. um, And they can start to open up questions and make you think. But there's a different kind of inquiry that involves trying to stretch yourself into uh, a phenomenological experience of the world that a philosophy is describing you know because we're right now we 're just we 're kind of completely molded into the phenomenological experience of the things in space world that our current philosophy dictates so uh, in working with philosophical ideas, I encourage people to try to stretch to stretch your your phenomenological apparatus, you know your experience creating. Mechanisms into the shape of a different philosophy, which is a little bit like meditation, but not quite. So what I want you to do is sit comfortably for a few minutes and just follow the instructions that I'm uh, going to give you. So first of all, I want to ask you to just feel your body. Just feel your body the way you normally feel it. Feel your feet on the floor. Feel your weight in the seat. I can feel the back of my knees bending around the chair, my hands on my thighs, a feeling of air flowing over my skin, particularly on my arms and face. So just get a sense of your whole body sitting in the chair. Feel your body sitting there. And now imagine the chair that you're sitting on. Imagine the seat of the chair, the back of the chair, the legs extending to the floor. Imagine the people sitting next to you, behind you. Imagine me sitting in front of you. Imagine the walls of the room, the world outside, you're feeling yourself as a thing existing in the space of the world alongside a lot of other things. Now especially if your eyes are closed, but even if they're open, it's pretty easy to imagine or to realize or to admit that everything beyond the walls of this room is purely imagination. We may be utterly convinced that it exists. But the only experience we have of it right now is an imagination. The same thing with the room. But the same thing is also true of our bodies. What I want you to do is really pinpoint, if you, if, you, if you put your attention on your experience of your body, what you will find is that there are few sensations that you are feeling, and you're feeling them in some kind of succession. And you can only feel about four or five of them at a time. So I kind of feel a little pain in my ankle, the soles of my feet on the floor, my hands in my lap, a little pain in my neck. Then I feel my seat in the chair. But when I feel my seat in the chair, I lose track of the pain in my neck. And now I just felt my soles on the floor again. I'd totally lost track of those. And there's my knees going around the edge of the chair. And there's my hands again. So if you look, you're feeling a succession of experiences, and your mind has been trained. to amalgamate those and to put them together into a solid experience of an entire body. But what's really there is a set of individual experiences. And if we look at any one of those experiences, like my hand on my thigh. You know, that gets broken down. I feel my finger, my fingers on my thigh, my palm on my thigh. But am I really feeling a palm on my th- thigh? Or am I just feeling a sensation that I'm defining as my palm on my thigh? How much of what I'm experiencing and what you're experiencing is just concept, is just an idea of a palm on a thigh. So in this kind of uh, practice, we're giving ourselves the space to enter into the perception of raw, uninterpreted non-conceptual sensation, where we forget all of our ideas about what it is we think we're experiencing, and we just notice that these are just sensations, before we conclude that they are something, before we add them up into a picture, they're just sensations. And maybe the way that we've been trained to add them up into an experience of ourselves isn't the only way they could be added up. So just sit for a minute and allow yourself to feel just the raw sensation that is your palette. It's like your artist palette, out of which you're creating your sense of your body, your sense of yourself, and the sense of the world. So our perceptual experience is dominated by a materialistic things in space assumption, which means I experience myself as ending at the edge of my skin. I experience myself as being limited by my physical, material body. I'm over here speaking to you, and you're over there listening. But as you listen to my voice, realize that the idea that I'm speaking from over here and that somehow my voice is traveling through air through space, through the air in space, and then hitting your eardrum and then resulting in some kind of neurological activity in your brain. you know that's a story, and it's one way to look at it, and it's valid in all kinds of ways. But another way to look at it is that I'm not just over here where I appear to be speaking. I'm also inside you where you're hearing me. Timothy Morton writes a lot about object-oriented ontology. And he writes about the horror that we need to face to embrace it. Because the horror of object-oriented ontology is the recognition that we are not separate, isolated, individual entities. We are actually interpenetrating. We're inside of each other. And everything else in the world is inside of us as well. I'm not just feeling a chair that's separate from me. My feeling of the chair is part of the chair. It's the part of the chair that exists in me. So see if you can stretch yourself. What would it be like if you believed that the voice you are hearing right now was not just Jeff's voice? but it was Jeff inside you? What if the chair that you felt under your seat was not just a chair that you were sitting on, but that that feeling was the chair inside you? What if there were no distinct boundaries separating us? What if we spread into each other, through each other? What if the empty space of the room was not just empty space, devoid of anything, but was actually another thing, a thing that we are inside of and that is inside of us? The assumption that we live in a universe of separate things that interact is a philosophical choice that we made a long time ago. It's not necessarily the only philosophical choice we could make. How hard would we have to work to reconstitute our nervous systems so that we experienced reality as an overlapping, interpenetrating collection of hyper-objects that had no definitive boundaries and no definitive edges, that moved inside of one another? And how would that affect the way that we live? How would we treat our planet if we didn't see it as separate from us? If I felt the ground under my feet was the planet inside me, what kind of intimacy would I develop with the natural, the non-human world? Okay. with that, you can open your eyes. And you know that's the world that Timothy Morton is proposing. It's a world of what you could call interpenetrating being. It's a world where the words coming out of my mouth are not coming from over here, flying through space and going in you. It's a world where I'm in you, speaking inside you, from the inside, not from the outside. And again, it's a a conception that from our current paradigm sounds absurd. But you know, the reality is, every time there's ever been a paradigm shift throughout human history, it started out sounding absurd. Relativity theory sounded completely absurd. The idea that time and space were were flip sides of one event sounded ludicrous. Um, Quantum theory sounded ludicrous to Einstein. Uh, You know, so. The fact that it sounds ludicrous doesn't disqualify it from being real. It just means it's far out from what we've been trained. So today has been about Timothy Morton and speculative realism and object-oriented ontology and what it would mean to move beyond our current human perspective of reality. Uh, And that's everything I have to share for the moment.